0: Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious God, draw near this day and again, open our eyes. Open our eyes that we may truly see. Open our ears that we may truly hear. And open our hearts by your grace that we may truly receive your goodness and your mercy. That we would be renewed evermore after the image of Jesus Christ, that we might show forth his glory. As he has shown it to us. And we ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So, something funny's happened today because I'm terrible at checking my emails and reading through them carefully. I didn't um, make sure our readings would be for Transfiguration Sunday, and that's totally on me today. And so, because we already have a PowerPoint set up, we went with the sixth Sunday uh, after Epiphany, sixth Sunday of Epiphany readings because we can't change that at the last second, but we can change um, what we are reading to follow that. So we went ahead and followed that, but I do want to go back and read some of the trans- some of of the the a couple of the passages for the Transfiguration, because that's what I prepared my sermon to be on today, was the Transfiguration being the last Sunday of Epiphany, also being the sixth Sunday of Epiphany. So it's all my fault this week that um, we didn't get to hear all the Transfiguration readings, but I can still read them from here. Um, but it's good, because that just means more scriptures read today, Then we go off and get, instead of four passages, we're going to get six today. And so our first one that I want to step back and read comes from 1 Kings chapter 9 or 19. Um, 1 Kings 19, beginning at verse 9. So hear this Then Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu to be king of the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And our other reading that I want us to hear today comes from Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. They no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. And so here we have the tale of two mountains. We have Elijah up on Mount Sinai, where he had fled to, and Jesus and his three of his disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's important that these things are happening on mountains. Mountains are an important part of what is going on throughout Scripture. God meets His people at the mountains continually. He pours Himself out upon the mountaintops. Remember back to the first time they went to Mount Sinai. Moses and the people of Israel and God came down in a dark cloud with lightnings and thunderings all down upon that mountain such that the people were scared witless. And when God spoke, they were even more frightened and begged. For Moses to be their representative. To go into that cloud and listen to God on their behalf and bring back word to them. And here at the Mount of Transfiguration, a mountain that we don't know the location of, there are a few options, but they're not important. What is important is that this is an event from Jesus' life, and we're not sure where it occurred. But Jesus took his disciples up a high mountain and led them up a high mountain to be by themselves. And there God meets his people. God meets three of the disciples and reveals to them the depth of Jesus' Messiahship. And so this tale of two different mountains, and we hear how God is going to work through his people and in his people through his chosen ones. We know that God is at work because he's accomplished everything in Jesus already, and we're going to look back and see how he is planning to do that through these passages. And so first, we'll start with Elijah at Mount Sinai, where he had fled to. You see, just at least 40 days, probably longer than that, before he was on Mount Sinai, he had his great confrontation with the prophets of Baal, where they performed sacrifices. And it was a challenge of which God is going to come and consume his sacrifice, which God is going to show up today. And so the prophets of Baal built their altar, and they slaughtered their bull, and they danced around, and they cut themselves, and they cried out for hours and hours and hours and hours, and nothing happened. It got to the point that Elijah started mocking them and asking them, "Was like, well, where is your God? Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he had to step out and go do something. Who knows where your God is?" Elijah mocked them because they were worshiping an idol and pursuing things of their own inklings, of their own desires. They were ignorant of the God of heaven and earth, of Yahweh Himself, and they were leading the people astray. And so then Elijah steps up to the plate, so to speak, and builds his altar using 12 stones. And then he slaughters his bulls. And then he has him pour 12 jugs of water over everything to soak it down so much so that there was no way it could catch on fire with just a match or with a spark. And then he prayed, To Yahweh, a simple prayer saying, send down your power and reveal yourself to your people. That's the essence of the prayer, not the actual prayer. And then what happened? Fire came down and consumed everything. Fire burned everything up. And everyone cried out, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is our God. All the people there cried out that Yahweh is the true God. And God won that day, so to speak, the people's hearts. But then Jezebel heard about it. Good old Queen Jezebel. When Ahab ran back to her and told her what had happened, that Elijah, after this great and glorious sacrifice had happened, went and killed all the prophets of Baal. He gets rid of the idolaters. He gets rid of those false prophets who are trying to lead the people of Israel astray. And she gets angry and breathes out threats against him saying, I will kill him. I will put him to death. I will hunt him down and murder him for what he has done because she was a worshiper of Baal. That's the only God she was committed to. And so what do you think Elijah did? Did he go and stand up to Jezebel as he stood up to Ahab? Did he stand up to her as he stood up to the prophets of Baal knowing that Yahweh is the one true God and would come down and do what was necessary to protect his people? No, he got scared. He became fearful of these threats for some reason. We don't know what happened. Suddenly he lost his nerve and he fled and ran away and went into hiding. And in his travels, he cries out and says, it'd be better if I was dead, O Lord. But God sends him food and says, you need strength. An angel of the Lord comes to him and feeds him and says, you need your strength. Eat and drink and rest. And then eat and drink the next day and then go your way to Mount Sinai. And so he traveled for 40 days to Mount Sinai and there he went up on the mountain and hid in a cave and waited for the Lord to speak to him. And that's where we come into today in our passage about this mountaintop, a mountaintop experience of experiences. What we all seek and desire is an opportunity to see God act, to see God do glorious things. And here's Elijah sitting in a mountain, quiet and waiting. And the Lord finally speaks, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. So God and Elijah have a discussion about what's been happening. I think there's a little bit of hyperbole here in Elijah's words about all the altars being thrown down. No one had thrown down the altar that he had built, the one that God had consumed with fire. I'm not sure that all the prophets had been killed with the sword, but he is right that they seek after his life to take it away. Elijah's Feeling sorry for himself right now. He's feeling crushed by the weight of victory and the weight of fear. He doesn't know how to respond right now and he's lost. And he's waiting for the Lord to speak. And the Lord says, go out and stand on the mountain. And behold, the Lord passed. And we hear all these things that the Lord does, but yet the Lord is not really there. The Lord is there, but he's not making himself known as his presence before Elijah. So the Lord passes and winds tear the mountains and break in pieces the rocks. And then there's an earthquake that shakes the mountaintop, but the Lord was not there either. And then a fire pours down upon the mountain, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then a low whisper, a thin voice, a thin silence. We don't know how to translate this Hebrew precisely, but there was something in the air. Something there that drew Elijah's attention and finally he comes out of the cave. He stayed in the cave the whole time instead of obeying the Lord and stepping out onto the mountaintop as the Lord had commanded him. He stayed in the cave waiting through the storm, through the earthquake, through the fire. And then he hears this thin voice, this low voice. What are you doing here, Elijah? And stepping out and being out, his face wrapped in a cloak, He stands at the entrance of the cave, hearing God and speaking, and He says the exact same thing. So the Lord says, just go and return. Go and do this. Go anoint Haziel. Go anoint Jehu. Go anoint Elisha. And the one who escapes Haziel will be put to death by Jehu. And the one who escapes Jehu will be put to death by Elisha. God is going to work through His people. He is going to accomplish His salvation no matter what. No matter how the prophets may fear Jezebel and Ahab. No matter how they may fear the prophets of Baal. He will, Yahweh will have the victory. He will put in place people who are going to accomplish His will. Whether they're believers or not. That's how God works. He uses everyone and anyone to accomplish His overarching desires for His people. And so Hazael, the king over Syria, is going to do the will of God despite him not being a believer. Jehu is going to do the will of God despite him not really quite being a believer. He has some trust in Yahweh as you read on, but he doesn't have a full kind of wholehearted commitment to Yahweh. And then Elisha is going to accomplish it, becoming an even greater prophet in many ways than Elijah himself. The two great prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. And Elisha will complete Elijah's work. And he will put down all those who have escaped, the idolaters who have escaped the will of God, according to Hazael and Jehu. Elisha will deal with them when the time comes. And so that is one mountaintop. One mountaintop experience where a man is fearful of everything. He has run and fled from his calling. But God sends him back out. And says, do these things now. Go anoint another prophet to be in your place because your time is coming to an end. Go anoint other kings to take over for the kings who are currently in charge of these other nations. And they will accomplish my will. They will take care of the wickedness. And this one that you anoint will take your place, this prophet. And he will have a double portion eventually. As we discover when Elijah goes out and he finds Elisha immediately. And he throws his cloak over him and calls Elisha to come and follow him, to do what he needs to do. And Elisha says goodbye to his mom and dad, gives them a kiss. He burns his yoke of oxen. His yoke and his oxen, he burns them as a sacrifice and he abandons everything for the sake of Yahweh. Knowing that the great prophet Elijah has called him to do a great and glorious work for Yahweh. And so he follows him. And he becomes his assistant. Doing everything that Elijah teaches him. And eventually seeing Elijah off. Seeing the chariot of fire come down and take Elijah up into heaven. Having a double portion of the spirit. He goes out in power to proclaim who Yahweh is before the people. And of course Elijah and Elisha have their counterparts in the New Testament. It is John the Baptist and Jesus John the Baptist being Elijah for the people. And then John the Baptist anointing Jesus by baptizing him. To be the greater and more glorious prophet. To be the one who all eyes will look upon. Becoming the great and new and glorious Elisha of the New Testament. Greater than any prophet before him. And here we come to the second mountain today. The Mount of Transfiguration. Where we see that second great Elisha. Jesus Himself go up with His disciples. Mark gives us the timing of the story. It's been six days. Six days later, he says, and that's six days after some teachings of Jesus, where He says that some of you will be here to see the coming of the kingdom. Some of you will see the kingdom come in great power. He's foretold His death and His resurrection. And so six days have passed. And he takes Peter, James, and John up the mountaintop with him. He takes them to go and witness something great and glorious, something beyond our imaginings. And they get up there, and he's transfigured. The word there, transfigured, relates to our word metamorphosis. Something strange happens to Jesus that they can't understand, but he becomes radiant, whiter. His face glows. His clothes, as Mark describes it, were intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. They were so white because of the glory of the Lord shining through Jesus, coming out of Jesus. Two things are occurring in this moment is one, I believe, absolutely, a revelation of Jesus' divinity to the disciples. That this is his divine nature shining through, being revealed. As one commentator said, the form of the servant giving way to the form of God before the people. But it's also simultaneously pointing out that he is the Messiah. He is the great and glorious one who will accomplish all things for the people. It has both things occurring in that passage. In that moment of being transfigured that he is revealing his divinity in a new and glorious way. A divinity that has been veiled, that has been hidden, that has been kept Secret in some ways. But he's also fully revealing his Messiahship, the one who is the radiant light of the nations that will draw all people to himself, the suffering servant who will bring everyone to himself. He will call and people will respond and receive his gifts. And then suddenly, Moses and Elijah show up with him. And they are speaking with him. Mark and Matthew don't tell us what they're talking about, but however... St. Luke does. And he tells us that they were speaking about his exodus. Jesus' coming exodus, which is his crucifixion and resurrection, his accomplishing salvation, his doing away with sin, his bringing the people of God out of the land of sin, out of their spiritual Egypt. And I'm sure Peter, James, and John, hearing these things, still were not grasping it, even though Jesus had been telling them that he was going to die and rise again. They still don't understand the purpose of this. Why would the Messiah die and rise? What is the point of this? And so Peter blurts out in hearing and seeing all these things, it's good that we are here. It is good. It's a glorious thing that they are there. He is absolutely and totally right in that. It is good that we are here, but then he keeps talking. Just like us in so many ways, we have a great spiritual experience and we try to tell someone, it's like it was wonderful, and then we try to talk more about it and we just fumble it all up. Because we can't make complete, coherent sense of these spiritual experiences. And he says, let's make three tents. One for you and Moses. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's make three tabernacles for you to dwell in. Probably a reference to the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. We don't know if the transfiguration was happening right at that moment. Or the was happening at the same moment as the Feast of Booths elsewhere. But nonetheless, that was on Peter's mind for some reason to make reference to this festival this glorious festival that reminded the people of their sojournings between Egypt and the promised land when they lived in tents and when Yahweh lived in a tent and he says let's make tents for you so that we can remember and mark this moment off He speaks out of hand. He doesn't know what he's saying. Mark explicitly says it. For they were terrified these three disciples are scared out of their minds because of what is happening in this glorious moment. And if you remember, Mark being the author of this gospel, it's understood that he was Peter's assistant. And so Peter probably told him this story and made it a point to say, I was terrified and I didn't know what I was saying. And I just blurted out whatever came to mind. And Peter and Mark wrote it down. So for everyone to remember, here's... Peter speaking and not really saying anything useful. But then after Peter yells that, let's make tents for you. A cloud overshadows them. The glory of God pours down in this cloud upon them. The Father arrives on the scene and speaks. The glorious cloud in Scripture. When you see clouds, you don't think of rain. When you see clouds, you think of the presence of God. He came down at Sinai in a great dark cloud. He hovered over the people of Israel in a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. The dark glory cloud poured down onto the temple when Solomon dedicated it and prayed over it with the priests. When, where there is a great cloud, there is the Father. There is Yahweh Himself getting ready to speak and come and be with His people. And he speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The words of the father echo perfectly alongside those first words at the baptism. When Jesus started his ministry, he was baptized. And when John baptized him, the Holy Spirit descended and the heavens were torn apart. And the father spoke, this is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased. The whole phrase isn't there, but enough of it to make us remember that passage. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And He adds to it. The Father does. Listen to Him. Hear Him. Pay attention. Take into mind what He tells you. Because He is my Son. He is my beloved Son. The eternal Son of of myself. My Son from all eternity past. And the Messiah come to earth to save His people. Come to earth to do away with the sins of the world. Listen to Him. Hear Him. Pay attention to His goodness. Pay attention to His words. Pay attention to His actions. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. A glorious and yet frightfully terrifying experience for these disciples to go through. They go up. Jesus is suddenly transfigured and becomes radically different totally different from what he was before, and yet is still Jesus himself, the Son of God, the Son of Man, their rabbi, their teacher. And yet they are terrified of this experience. And then the cloud comes down and the Father speaks out of the cloud, and then suddenly it all is over. And what is left? But Jesus only. To remind us that it is only Jesus that we look to, it's not to the glorious experiences, those glorious experiences are helpful They guide us. It's not to the mountaintop that we look, but it's to Jesus only that we look. We look to the Messiah alone, the divine Son of God come to earth to be a man, that he might die on our behalf, that he might be raised on our behalf, that he might receive the Holy Spirit on our behalf, that he could pour him out to us. Jesus only is who we are to look to. Elijah got caught up in looking at the struggles around himself, seeing Jezebel breathing out threats and threatening to kill him and going after other prophets previously. And he ran in fear, not having a full and complete trust in Yahweh to protect him. But Yahweh still uses him when he brings him back to his senses and sends him back out. He calls him back to himself out of his fear, out of his sinfulness, out of his bad tendencies. And here likewise the disciples are terrified but yet they are encouraged with this vision to keep pressing forward despite the events that are about to happen and the father reminds them listen to Jesus he's going to keep talking to you he's going to keep teaching you and one of the main things Jesus does is he keeps reminding them of his death and his resurrection the Messiah will die the Messiah will come to an end on a cross but he will rise again and you know that he can rise again for he has been transfigured before you He has shown His glory that He is not a mere man. He is not a mere Messiah servant. But He is the Son of God Himself. The Son of Man who stands before the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. This is the man, this is the one who has come to earth and will ascend back into heaven to be before the Father, the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man to stand once more before Him. though He will die, He will rise. And so we look at Jesus only. And what does this mean for us as we look to Jesus only? We know that we will receive what Jesus has received. We'll receive a reflection of His glory in our own being glorified. And that's the last part of this is to remind us that Jesus is a man and He has been glorified and we too will participate in that glory. We too will come to shine and reflect that glory to glory everlasting glory will be poured upon us and come out of us because we are united to Jesus. We have been made one with Him. As we look to Him, we will reflect His glory toward the rest of the people. We are not called to hide it as Moses hid the glory of the Lord. We are not called to put a veil over our faces because that glory is hidden in us. We know it's there because the Father has given it to Jesus and Jesus gives it to us But it is still there, though it's hidden. And it is seen by the world around us as we live a life of faith and repentance. It is seen as that as we go out and do the work the Lord has called us to do. As we live lives that embrace God's forgiveness, that confess our sin, that turn from our sins, that receive the reconciliation of the Father through the Son for us. That becomes extended through our lives and goes out to others as we move with forgiveness Extending reconciliation to those who have hurt us, who have harmed us. Calling them to recognize their sin and calling them to repentance for in repentance reconciliation can happen. When one party sins against you, you can still extend forgiveness even when they're not recognizing their sin. But the reconciliation will come when they see sin, when they see the pain that they have caused, when they've seen the hurt and the sin that they have committed. And reconciliation occurs because that's what happens between us and the Father. The Father gives us forgiveness through Jesus. And He creates reconciliation when we repent. Reconciliation is ready to be poured out upon us from the Father. The world is being reconciled. And that reconciliation comes to completion as we embrace repentance, as we embrace that forgiveness and turn and trust in what Jesus has done for us. And that's why we look to Jesus only. It's only in Him that that forgiveness and reconciliation happens. It's only in His glorious presence that that can occur. And when all is stripped away, we are left with only Jesus, the center of all that we are called to focus upon. He alone is all that we are to see. And what happens after this moment? They travel down the mountain and they begin a path toward a third mountain the mountain of Calvary Mount Calvary where Jesus will go upon that place of the skull and he will die Jesus went up this high mountain to be transfigured to show to his disciples who he truly was after revealing it to them after they confessed it and then they travel back down into the valley the valley of suffering to go toward another mountain where there's not a great and glorious experience as we understand it but an experience of great suffering that Jesus endures on our behalf that we might be strengthened to endure whatever suffering we encounter in this valley of the world. As we travel through this valley looking toward Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives that one day Jesus will return to, we keep our eyes on Jesus and we recognize the mountains that He has climbed on our behalf. He went up Mount Calvary for us He stood upon that skull and was placed upon a cross that we would keep looking at that death and resurrection. That we would keep that before us and be changed more and more knowing that as He has been transfigured we too will participate in a transfiguration of our own when He returns. And we can live in light of that all of our days trusting Him to come and be with us no matter what. When all is stripped away we are truly left with Jesus only. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.